a few talks ago, I don't know if you remember when I was talking about generosity, I began by describing an incident with the Buddha when a, when a man with leprosy was hanging around the edge of his teachings, and the Buddha saw he was the one person whose mind could hear the Dhamma, and he gave graduated teachings, which he gives in many different places, to brighten the mind, to make the mind more purified and malleable and receptive. Basically, and that the first of those teachings was generosity. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about the second of those teachings, which is virtue, or sila, non-harming conduct, which of course we've talked about all along. But I just want to point to it again as both, of course, when we have a habit of acting, speaking, and even thinking in ways that don't bring harm to ourselves or others, of course, that's fairly obvious that that would bring us some kind of happiness, right? I mean, probably we could all agree on that. That's not rocket science. And, um, but what I want to talk about, really, in terms of that, is the way that we explore our actions. You know, really understanding, really turning our attention to working with sila, which is a whole lifelong process. So instead of just going out and, you know, blaming ourselves because we did something stupid or harmful, what I want to really talk about is how the practice of attention to our motivations and our actions is the practice of wakefulness, is the practice of mindfulness wisdom, just as the practice of generosity is also the practice of awakening, of non-clinging. So... Just as, as generosity, sila is not an isolated or lesser practice, I want to say. Even though often on retreats, I mean, we take the precepts and we always talk about how virtue, non-harming conduct is necessary as a base, you know, basis of non-remorse so we can get onto the real stuff and have some good meditative states and make progress in our practice. And I'd just like to put out that if we would just be interested, really committed to exploring our actions and speech and why we do what we do and what's the effect that wisdom would arise naturally of itself, that this practice of itself is a practice of purifying the heart and mind. And purifying the heart and mind is really the abandoning of kalesa, which is what allows wisdom and awakening to arise in any moment. And so... Working with sila is a wonderful practice. And like Sally was talking about last night, you know, it's not separate from our awakening, not separate from our life, how we act. So there's a lot of, I hope this talk isn't too pedantic, but there's just a lot of different suttas that I really like to refer to from the Buddha. So this one, just the first line, he says, Monks, a fool is characterized by his or her actions. A wise person is characterized by his or her actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's discernment shines. Through the activities of one's life that one's wisdom shines. That's the Buddha. And I just think that's so beautiful, you know, that we can really both not so much how we see it in others, but really start to trust and value for ourselves that our natural wisdom and the wisdom that develops naturally through our willingness to be mindful of our actions, that will naturally manifest in how we act in the world. And this is so important. And I think we sometimes, I mean, we talk about it grandiose, but I'm just talking moment to moment our thoughts, our speech, our actions as, a, as an avenue of awakening. And as the Buddha is saying, this is really how our wisdom shows up, how we act. It's not a little thing. So the training in this is the training of awakening our mind. I want to um, just clarify what we've spoken of before in terms of action. Action is the translation of the Pali word kama, Sanskrit word karma. As I said the other day in the, I think it was in the, um, in the Upeka teaching, so a lot of people weren't there. Um, kama just means action. 
And the Buddha said that, he said that chetana, which is the word in Pali that we translate as intention. So here's another vocabulary discussion. When we talk about intention, as Sally did last night so beautifully, really movingly to me, about our wider intention, aspiration, our purpose in life. Intention is another one of those words in English that can um, apply to kind of a range of mental experience, like love or desire. So in this term, intention, as Sally was using it, the broader aspiration, the purpose, as the second uh, step of the Eightfold Path, and that is, in Pali, as she says, samasankapa. It's not samachetana. Chetana is the Pali word that is also translated as intention, and it's very specific. It's referring to the mental factor of intention, or sometimes motivation, but again, motivation can have all those different meanings too. So tonight, I'll try and be clear when I'm saying intention right now, I'm meaning chetana. And chetana is that uh, moment, a movement in the mind, that gathering of mental energy, the collecting of mental energy that leads to speech or action. So when we talked about noticing intention as an instruction in the retreat, we talked about maybe there's a, a little intention before you move your arm, before you open your eye, just a little Joseph likes to call it a little about-to movement, just like a little, uh, you know. That's the mental action that we're calling intention, chetana. And it, in terms of how the Buddha described it, it arises, it's the, it's the immediate cause of every action of body, speech, or mind. Are we going to see it all the time? No way. Don't even try. But it's just part of the cause and effect process. Ethically neutral, of course. It's just this little... But as it arises in a moment of consciousness, a moment of mind chitta, it arises together with other mental factors, just as we've talked about with other things. So when the Buddha talks about what's skillful or unskillful kama, first he says, and this is from the Buddha, chetana, intention, I tell you, is kama. Intending, one does kama by way of body, speech, and intellect. And this is what's so, I think, brilliant because it's workable for us of the Buddha that he's saying the seed of action when he's talking about kama, when he's talking about skillful or unskillful, where he's looking for the heart of the action is in this moment of intention. And so what makes it skillful or unskillful, wholesome or unwholesome, and this is what we go on to explore in our lives, with mindfulness and wisdom just at the point of action, what makes it wholesome or unwholesome is the qualities, the mental qualities that are arising along with it, right? Right? (laughs) Right, makes sense? No, yes. You're still here so far? I know it's been a long day for half of you. It's like, what are we doing sitting here? It's time to go to bed. The rest of you, though, are so deeply, deep in samadhi, I know. So, simple examples how we cannot tell from looking at an action what the intention is of someone else, although we think we really know. But actually, we know we don't even know what our own intentions are half the time, never mind somebody else. But the seed of it being in the intention, if the same act from the outside could arise from very different intentions, right? And just a simple example I always use, just because it's an easy one. If you have something, some supportive feedback you want to give a friend, right? There could be so many intentions behind that. I don't have to go into it, but I will. (laughs) It could really be out of love for this person, and they're doing so. I just had this experience recently with a friend, and I really thought about it for like three weeks before I told her, a friend I was with in Burma for a while, of something she was doing that I could see was unwholesome. It was unskillful, and I knew she didn't really want to be doing it, and that it would be, was causing unskillful ripples, unpleasant ripples, you know, hurting people's feelings. 
And so I really thought about it. I mean, it's one of, I have to say, the few times that I really was very aware of my intention before speaking. Speaking's a tough one. Um, and I really waited, and, and I was in a very, I really was clear. I got in touch with my metta and my caring for her and the sense of honesty, and I picked the right time when we were both, rela- and, and communicated in, I thought, a really good way. And she heard it in a good way and was appreciative. And I thought, that's like a wholesome speech and a wholesome reception. And I really did what the Buddha des- describes, which I'll read in a minute, was to, was to really reflect on my intention, my motivation for speaking. But that, you know, one in a million. So, maybe not a million. (laughs) But it's so easy, isn't it, to fool ourselves and say, well, I want to give you this feedback for your own good, but it's really because you're bugging me and I want you to stop doing this thing. And so there's a version. Or a sense of you'd be so much better off if you'd listen to me, you know, and so I know so much more, you know, all those kind of things. It could really be straight out and out hostility. It could be, you know, how you're couching it, oh, let me tell you this for your own good, and you can just feel, you know, the hostility coming at you. When someone comes in and goes, I want to give you some feedback. (laughs) Can I give you some feedback? No, no. Um, All of it could be the same words. And another way is you can really get in touch with your intention. As far as you can tell, it's really a a meta-caring intention but you don't look at the bigger picture, so you don't choose an appropriate time. You go in and you say, well, I've really got to tell you this right now. And there's this sense of urgency, and you don't notice that the person is really stressed out. They've had a horrible day. They're, you know, they're like uh, at the end of their tether, can't take another thing, and you, you, know, you want to give them this helpful feedback. So there's a certain delusion in that intention. You see what I mean? Of course it's complex, so we're not going to get it right. But just starting to see how that's the seed of wholesome or unwholesome. We tend to, of course, uh, judge by the, the effects of our actions, which, of course, is the thing that's most out of our control. You know, so with my friend, I, I did really the best I could, but I had no control over what her reaction would be. Knowing her, I thought she'd want to know, but I could have been totally wrong. Or I could have thought it was a good time, and I didn't know what she was doing all day. You know, I can't know what state of mind she was in, or maybe she had just gotten some really bad news five minutes before, and there's no way you could know that, you know? There's all kinds of stuff we can't know. Uh, So being able to tune into the intention, that's a place that we can actually see for ourselves that, Not that it's in our control, but it's in our awareness. It's actually going to be affected by the quality of our mind, of our consciousness. The more wholesome acts we do, that affects the consciousness. We get more wholesome consciousness. The more wholesome consciousness, the more wholesome acts we do. You can't really separate the two. So even when we can't see clearly our intentions, even with the best will in the world, when, as we've talked this whole retreat, when a moment of, of consciousness is colored by kalesa and we don't realize it, we're just not going to see clearly. That's just how it is. But our willingness to just keep looking, to just keep looking and keep reflecting, which I'll read in a minute, before, during, and after an action that willingness to bring mindfulness and wisdom right to the point of intention, to the point of action, and to the point of effect, that's going to continue to deeply cultivate our awareness. It's going to allow for natural wisdom to grow, and it's going to be a source of deepening happiness in our lives, in the world, certainly in the people around us that know us. But just as in meditation, so... Uh, when we're paying attention to our actions, the consciousness is still can still be colored by kalesa that we don't recognize. Here's a list that I really like. Uh, from it's from the Vinaya, which is the one of it's not the from the Buddhist canon. The Vinaya is the book that's the book of the monks' rules and how they came to be. Not not the suttas, not the discourses. So this is the four agati, which is called the four. Um, wrong or not helpful courses of behavior or prejudice. 
which are abandoned with wise seeing. And you can see they're wrong courses of behavior, but they're caused by unclarity, by kalesa in the mind stream. So, but they're courses of action. So chanda gati, remember chanda is this zeal, this wanting, translated as desire, and it's called prejudice that's caused by love or desire, partiality. And so when we, when we you know, have a partiality or someone we don't see clearly, and we can act or make choices based on not being able to see the whole situation clearly, our own acts or another. The second, obviously, dosagati, prejudice caused by hatred or enmity. The third, guess what? Mohagati, caused by delusion. This translation says stupidity. I would say ignorance. Just, uh, I don't know what we're doing. Just what the heck? It sounds like a good idea. Let's just do it. Or just not knowing, like the example I gave. You're trying to do something helpful, and you don't have all the information. That would be ignorance. It's not really delusion of the um, mental state of moha. It's just we don't have all the information. And the fourth, and I like it that this is broken out, bayagati, which is fear. So prejudice leading to uh, unhelpful, unskillful actions caused by fear in our mind stream at the moment. It can relate to how we could do all kinds of stuff from fear. Even here, just little fear, and it gets so magnified, and just... Just little things, like, I mean, I can go walking and I'll hear a dog bark, and without even realizing it, fear comes and I turn and walk the other way. That's not, like, horribly unskillful. But the intention of that is just delusion and fear and not paying any attention to what I'm doing. It doesn't hurt anything in terms of outer action, but in terms of of really just noticing what the intentions, what's coloring my chitta, what's coloring my mind stream right now, that's really interesting to see. Because then when I can notice the fear, I have a choice. Do I want to keep walking straight? Do I want to turn around? In the big picture, it doesn't make any difference. I realize that. But this is the good places to play with it, you know, where it doesn't really make a big difference. So if there's a decision of how to help a friend and you're helping the friend brings up fear, how to be with, for example, someone who's really sick. And I've noticed often that to be with someone who's in a lot of pain or a lot of suffering, this is where compassion is so beautiful and where compassion is difficult, is when it brings up fear in us or it brings up dosa, aversion, or it's just hard to be there. And we can come up with all kinds of rationales without realizing, you know, I really want to help, but I, I, I have my family to take care of. I really want to help, but I have to go to work. I'm too tired, whatever. Tune into our motivation. I feel the fear right there. Okay, fear's happening. And just as in our practice sitting here, we bring that same quality of awareness, mindfulness, wisdom, not I should do this, I should move through the fear, I should be the perfect person. No. Just bring the mindfulness to the fear. Oh, fear is like this. These are the actions that start to come up from fear. You do it or you don't do it. You keep paying attention. This is where the Buddha, again, is so brilliant, where we really learn. We really learn what causes affliction or suffering to ourselves and others, what doesn't cause affliction or suffering to ourselves and others. And so this, like this silly fear example I gave of turning around when a dog barks. That's not causing affliction to anybody else, for sure. There's no one else even around. The dog certainly doesn't care. It doesn't seem to cause affliction to me on the external. But if I'm paying attention to my mind, and I notice, oh, I turn around, I ran from fear, and I notice that's a moment where fear was basically driving the bus. And if I don't recognize that, that's feeding fear, really. Not that I hate myself for it, but I really see how that's kind of helping the reaction of fear get stronger. And in that moment of contraction and fear and turning away, my senses shut down, the mind is contracted, and it's subtle. I mean, it's pretty subtle, but it is a kind of suffering, of separation. 
that's being fed, that's being strengthened by my inattention. If I pay attention while I turn around from the fear, just the same thing we've been saying here, it's exactly the same process. Recognizing and feeling the fear as I turn around, fear is like this. In that moment, mindfulness is what's being cultivated. In that moment, acceptance, clear seeing. There's no, okay, you've got to turn around and face the dog. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Maybe it doesn't really matter. But what does matter is that quality of being willing to use the motivations, why I'm doing what I'm doing as a path of awakening. Without a should, we keep exploring. So this is, I'm sure many of you have heard this, a sutta where the Buddha is giving advice to his son, Rahula, the seven-year-old, I guess he wasn't an arhat yet at this point. And um, some other things first about honesty, but, but this part where he's talking about reflecting on actions. And this is really what we can do. And the whole point of it is the, the quality of care and attention we bring, the attitude we bring to these reflections. She says, what do you think, Rahula? What is the purpose of a mirror? For the purpose of reflection, venerable sir. So too, Rahula, an action with the body should be done after reflection. An action by speech should be done after reflection. An action by mind should be done after reflection. And then he breaks it down. And I just think this is, it's so helpful and just so basic. But he says, when you wish to do an action with the body, you should reflect upon that action in this way. Would this action that I wish to do lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or the affliction of both? And notice he's saying my own affliction too. He's not just saying the affliction of others. So really looking and seeing what's the motivation and as best I can tell what would be the effect. Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results? Now, if on reflection that's obvious... And what's surprising is how often that might be obvious if we really reflect it. He said, if you notice that's true, then, of course, definitely you should not do that action. But if you reflect when you know this action I wish to do would not lead to my affliction or the affliction of others or both, it's a wholesome bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results. And that's, of course, to the best of your knowledge because we don't know the results. Then you may do it. And this is the part that's interesting. It says, also while you were doing the action with the body. So good chance we didn't you know, do the reflection in the beginning. Or we did it, but we say, well, I really don't know. So we start doing it with the body. And then he does the same with speech, and then the same with thinking. So while you're doing the action, reflect upon it in this same way. Is this action I am doing, is it leading to my own suffering? Is it leading to the suffering of others? Is it leading to the suffering of both? Is it unwholesome for myself, for others? And if you see it's having painful consequences, then you should suspend that action. You should just stop doing that action. But if it's not, then fine, continue. And after you've finished an action, again, to reflect on it, did that action lead to my own affliction? The affliction of others, the affliction of both. Was it unwholesome, unwholesome results? And if so, then he says you should really tune into that, see what the effect is. And he's talking to a monk, so a monk they, they would go and um, confess it in the, in, the, in the biweekly meetings that they have. But for us, it would be just to really reveal it, lay it open to your heart. If it's something you're confused about, talk to. It says talk to a teacher or your wise companions in the holy life and then undertake restraint for the future. So this is with body, with speech, with mind. Reflect before, during, and after. And this is the important thing, though. It's not just if it's unwholesome, also noticing if it's wholesome. Noticing what's the effect during it, what's the effect after it. If, when you reflect, if you know, this action that I did did not lead to my affliction, or the affliction of others, or of both. It was a wholesome bodily action, or speech action, or mind action. It had pleasant consequences, wholesome results. Then you can abide happy and glad 
training day and night in wholesome states. So that's the other thing I really want to emphasize, that seal is just not about looking at how bad we are and trying to not be bad. It's actually tuning in, just as with generosity, to the happiness of heart, the gladness of heart, when we're not, when we act in a way that doesn't cause ourselves or others suffering. And as he said, training day and night in wholesome states. But even just restraining, refraining consciously from an unwholesome action, that is a wholesome action, which I bet we often don't realize. Oh, yeah, I better not do that. Oh, I was about to do that. I'm so dumb. I'm so greedy. But we don't do it. Could we actually appreciate the wholesomeness of not doing it before we jump into beating ourselves up for having thought about doing it? Could actually move into the joy, the happiness, the wholesomeness of refraining from affliction. So this is the way the Buddha talks about it. And really noticing how our willingness to do this over and over is actually the same practice of mindfulness wisdom at the point of contact with awareness that we're going to do something or want to do something, a thought, a motivation, an intention. That's the same mindfulness wisdom that we're cultivating in our meditation here. It's no different. No different. That willingness to just meet what's happening and to explore with an interest, not with judging, not with thinking, this is a list of what's good, this is a list of what's bad. I mean, there's plenty of lists like that. I'll give you one in a minute. But it's, that's not the way it works. It's that, that willingness with a um, beginner's mind to see what's the effect of this action of speech, of body, of mind. What are the causes that bring me to do it? How does it seem when I'm doing it? What's the effect when I'm done, both for myself and for others? So, and, it, and it's equal not harming yourself or not harming others. just want you all to take that in. I know I've said that three times already, and I'm going to say it again. Because non-harming includes you. It's not just about everyone else in the world but you. It's where we start. And then when we do see the cause and effect, and we've done something and we see it was, it was unwholesome, it caused some affliction to myself or others, then the way the Buddha says to abandon it, and again, I like this. I mean, of course, it always sounds easier when he says it you know, than it is for us. But he's, he doesn't say, when you realize you've done an unwholesome action, then grovel, hate yourself, really go over and over and over and think about what a bad person you are and get filled with guilt and remorse. No, he doesn't say that. He says, uh, so this example I have, this is from a sutta, he said, someone telling lies. And he has said, he says to Rahula that actually speaking untruth is it's almost like the most unskillful thing we can do. So he's saying telling lies is really not a good thing. But he said, there, so if someone sees there are lies that I have told to a greater or lesser extent, so if someone's reviewing this in their mind, that was not right, that was not good. So you're just looking at it. But this is kind of a neutral, saying that wasn't right, it wasn't good. But if I become guilty, remorseful, and this way remorseful is meaning with a negative self-judging tinge. If I get lost in guilt for that reason, that unwholesome deed of mine will not be undone. Have you noticed that? (laughs) That no matter how long you spin in hating yourself for something you did yesterday or a minute ago or last year, It doesn't undo it, right? (laughs) So reflecting this, now this is where it sounds easier than it is. So reflecting thus, he abandons right then the telling of lies and in the future refrains from telling lies. This is how there comes to be the abandoning of that unskillful deed. This is how there comes to be the transcending of that unskillful deed. Okay, so take it as a teaching, not as we see it once and it's over. But he's saying, really, you look and you see with mindfulness wisdom, with this attitude that's really interested in how is this mind working? 
What were the intentions? Why did I do it? What was the effect of it? How did that work? What, how did that work in, for me? How did that work for others? And we can only see in this way if we're interested. And again, that interest is, is the quality of, of pure mindfulness, of awareness that's not colored by self-hatred, by wanting. That's not trying to you know, make it look better than it was or worse than it was. So in that moment of the reflecting, what we're doing is purifying the mind, just in the paying attention. Even before we've gotten to the fact, oh, maybe lying is not such a good thing, just in the looking, we're cultivating mindfulness and wisdom. We're cultivating that quality of awareness that can be with anything. Remember when we say awareness doesn't care, it means it just wants to see how it is. It doesn't have a presupposition, is this wholesome or not? It's looking to see what's really the effect. And so when we're looking in that way, that's how when we're doing something that's unskillful, we'll only abandon it first when we really get it for ourselves, that it was causing us harm, causing another harm. And as I'm sure you know by now, usually one time isn't quite enough to really get it, that it's causing us harm. Would that it were, but it's not. But it does start to sink in when we're continuing to meet what's happening with this attitude of interest and non-judging. So we do get to know, and you all know this from being here. We know it and then we don't know it the next day, right? But we really do get to know deeply, personally for ourselves the uh, afflictive aspect, to use the the word Tan Jeff was using in that translation, Thomas Sarabiku, the afflictive aspects of so-called unskillful action. And that's what's meant by unskillful. Not that there's a list of things, you do them, you're good, you don't do them, you're bad, and we don't have to think about it anymore. That, that's, I mean, that's better than you know, not thinking about anything. It's better to, if you can't pay attention and you're not interested in paying attention and you don't want to have to pay attention to what you're doing in your life, well, you're in the wrong place, I guess. But if you really don't want to and you want to just let me take this list of things not to do, okay, that would be good. I mean, I think that's better than nothing, so I'm not putting that down. But that's not the way that this deep understanding of the suffering grows. And as that deep understanding grows, through paying attention, through really feeling it, a lot of you are kind of in that phase now where we notice so much more clearly when we speak or act or even think in an unskillful way, colored by kalesa. But we keep doing it. And we're feeling the suffering of it so much more than we did before. And someone was asking this morning about just wanting to go back to delusion. You know, and I can understand that. It's like as we begin to wake up and to become much more sensitive to what we're doing and why we're doing it and the effects just in ourselves, never mind in others, if we do have an effect on others and that even has more of an effect on ourselves, it's so painful. It's so painful. But somehow the attachment to, that keeps us doing it might still be there, but we keep on experiencing the pain so much more deeply and part of it, just let me not have to see this anymore. But I'm sure you know now, it's too late. <laughs> it's way too late for all of you to go back to delusion because it's, it's not the safe refuge, you know, that I see my mind wanting to do, please, I don't want to see anymore. But then it sees that, you know, <laughs> and it's just, okay, that was just another passing moment. But anyway, so, so it's difficult. That's why compassion is so key for us, because there's times when we're so much more sensitively tuned in to the, the painful effect, just even of our unwholesome thoughts. We're so sensitive, you know. And here on retreat, it's so magnified. You know, stuff that we're in agony over that we did that was unskillful, you know, that the other people would have noticed here. You go out in the world and tell someone, oh my God, you know, I just pushed in front of this person in line because I really wanted that particular muffin. And I just feel so terrible. I know they knew it. And they felt really, I'm making this up. Nobody told me this. And, you know, I know they knew it. I could see them flinch. I know that, you know, and all. And it's, it's a huge thing. And you're really suffering from it. 
And the other person maybe is too. The other person comes in and says, I'm still making it up. The other person comes in and says, I, I just feel so disrespected. They just push in front of me. It's like I don't even exist. And now I'm filled with hate for them and I feel horrible. Filled with hate for them. Horrible, you know? You know what I mean? And you go out and try and tell someone you feel like so remorseful because you stepped in line in front of somebody and took a muffin. And they're like, excuse me? Have you read the newspapers recently? <laughs> But we really are. This really is how the mind and heart begins to understand deeply. And the wisdom, because we can't create wisdom, wisdom arises naturally. And I'm sure you've all had experiences. So I'll just tell you one I've used before just because that's what came to mind and I didn't have a good story from one of you and I didn't want to use one from one of you anyway. But uh, just... A few years ago, when we had a, our former president, the last president, and he was doing something I didn't approve of. And um, I forget, it was some big thing he'd done. And I remember I was just kind of walking up and down in, in the country road near where I live. And I could see annoyance, I could see anger, but I really got into the anger in a way I don't often do. And I was just filled with this Rage, but the kind of rage that's a righteous indignation that has a lot of, yeah, I'm right, and there's a, that, that kind of rage that has a kind of sweetness if you don't look carefully. You know, yeah, right, the jerk, I know, how could he? You know, it, was just, it was building and building and building. And all my thoughts were right, of course, and everyone I knew that I would speak to would totally agree with me. And so, yeah, you know, you know I'm sure you can all relate. Once in a while you've had something like that. So I was doing that and really, really caught in it. Until suddenly, and this is just, you know, thank God for the habit of mindfulness and the habit of wisdom, because it just arose by itself. Suddenly, just mindfulness, wow, anger feels like this. And it felt terrible. I mean, it was just like on fire with rage, and it was burning, and one angry thought was feeding the next angry thought, and then my, my energy was getting stronger. And I saw I was about to have to go off and do something. And if anyone had come up and talked to me just then, I would have snapped their head off, you know. Whatever it was, the anger would have just, you know, gone over. If it was someone who agreed with me, we would have gotten together and, you know, badmouth the president but or whoever. But if not, if someone just got in my way a little bit or stepped in front of me, or I could just see the hostility starting to grow. And the mindfulness just felt that. Not with a should or you're bad or anything, just felt how that felt, what the effect was on the mind stream, how it was going to affect my speech and action. Luckily, no one else was around, but it would have. And just right then, the wisdom just came by itself. And the wisdom just comes from the steadiness of seeing. It's like, whoa, nothing's worth it. I mean, I wasn't doing anything helpful. I mean, that anger wasn't helping the situation in any way. And I got, it was just so clear at that moment that nothing is worth feeding anger like that in my mind or adding that anger to the world. It was just, and just then, you know, the anger went away. It doesn't mean it never came back, and it doesn't mean we don't act. But acting from that anger wouldn't have been in any way helpful. And I remember it because it was such a strong, clear seeing and how the wisdom it was completely nothing to do with me. It just arose from the mindfulness, just from the awareness, noticing anger and feeling it. And that arose from the habit of awareness for so many years. And the wisdom, it's just so wonderful. I love it to see that it's not something we have to remember and call up. Oh, yeah, anger, suffering. Yeah, that's right. It's not good. I think I'll try not to do it. But it's just right there when there's awareness. It's just right there. That's what we can really learn to trust. And that's what we're cultivating. And in that restraining from the anger, well, that just happened effortlessly. But there's still an intention to abandon anger and knowing that that's a wholesome action. Not doing harm is a wholesome action. So really appreciating that. You know, you don't have to go out and be Mother Teresa. But just refraining is wisdom.
Sally mentioned last night in um, talking about the second step of the Eightfold Path, wise intention or wise aspiration, right thought is how it's usually translated. And that's a sutta that's also interesting, back to the sutta, because the Buddha is using the same type of mindfulness wisdom, just reflecting, exploring with interest his types of thought and the effects of his thought. So when we, and, and that's how he came up with this sense of wise thought and unwise thought. And I like it, just to want to read a little bit of it, because it's, it's bringing the same quality of exploration rather than just saying, this is bad, this is good. He's looking and seeing what's the effect. And skillful, unskillful is really determined by effect. And we're only going to learn that for ourselves. So he's talking about the Buddha, about when he was practicing before he became awakened, before he became a Buddha. So already I always find that kind of interesting. And see, so the thought occurred to me, and it's always translated like that. He never says, I thought. It's always, the thought occurred to me. I like that because to me it just gives the sense of how thoughts just arise. If the thought occurs, it's a little different from I thought. So the thought occurred to him, why don't I just keep on dividing my thinking into two, two sorts? So he said, I, I, I decided to, whenever I had thinking with sense desire, thinking filled with ill will, or thinking filled with harmfulness, I would look at that as one type. And thinking with renunciation, with um, non-ill will, or metta, and with harmlessness. So you can see those are the three wise thoughts as another type. And so as I remained heedful, ardent and resolute, thinking filled with sense desire arose. I want you to hear that. This is, he's not the Buddha yet, but he's no slouch. (laughs) He's practicing. He's heedful, ardent, and resolute. It's a projection, but I imagine his heedful, ardent, and resolute is pretty heedful, ardent, and resolute, right? Thinking imbued with sensuality arose. I discerned, with, with, I just noticed thinking imbued with sensuality has arisen. And he looked at how it affected, he said, it leads to my own affliction or the affliction of others. It obstructs wisdom. It obstructs clear seeing. It promotes vexation. It does not lead to liberation. And as I noticed that it leads to my own affliction, this thinking subsided. As I noticed that it leads to the affliction of myself or others, it subsided. As I noticed that it obstructs clear seeing, that it promotes vexation, does not lead to liberation, it's subsided. Isn't that interesting? He's just really noticing with clear mindfulness what's arising and how it's acting and what the effect is. He's not saying, I hate it. I mean, sometimes he talks about rooting out, abandoning, and he does later say, I abandoned it, dispelled it, wiped it out of existence. Okay, but that's the second way it's just talked about. The first way is, as I noticed it, and as I noticed it led to my vexation, it subsided. That's sort of like what I was talking about with that anger example. As the awareness, and it's not a person, not like, I noticed, I'm so great. It's just mindfulness, wisdom, a mental factor arising, sees clearly that this sense-desire thinking is leading to my own vexation. And seeing that, just steady, steady with mindfulness, wisdom, for that moment it subsides. Try it. You've been doing that the whole time. But more start really having faith, confidence in the power of mindfulness and wisdom and the willingness to just be honest, to bring this interest, this honest interest into seeing what's going on in our mind, what's the motivation for doing this. And then the same thing for uh, thinking filled with ill will or thinking filled with um, harmfulness. This when he noticed it leads to my vexation, to affliction of myself or others, doesn't lead to freedom. It um, subsided. And then, this is that famous line we always use, but it's from the sutta. Whatever a person keeps pursuing with his thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of his awareness. And so we just notice that. If you keep pursuing thinking imbued with sensuality, abandoning thinking filled with renunciation, 
then the mind becomes bent to thinking about sensuality, right? Just what we've noticed. So here, when you're bringing, when mindfulness is arising, even mindfulness of sense desire, mindfulness of thinking filled with ill will, mindfulness of thinking filled with harmfulness, what the mind is being bent toward is the mindfulness, is the awareness, not the ill will. When we jump on it and go, yeah, I am so bad for thinking about ill will and I do need to do something to stop it because it is and all of that, that's pursuing thinking imbued with ill will. Mindfulness of it just watches the cause and, oh, yes, this does cause me suffering. Let's see how that works. That's really very powerful. And then he went on to noticing thinking imbued with renunciation has arisen in me. And looking at it, I discerned it does not lead to my own affliction or the affliction of others. It fosters wisdom, clear seeing. It promotes lack of vexation, more ease, contentment, leads to freedom. If I were to think and ponder in line with that for even a day, for even a night, even for a day and a night, I do not envision any danger that would come from it except that thinking and pondering a long time would tire the body. Have you noticed that? Even, even wholesome thoughts, you ponder a day and a night, it tires the body. When the body is tired, the mind is disturbed. And a disturbed mind is far from concentration. So he's also noticing the effect on the body. He's, okay, that's enough already. So I steadied my mind, <laughs> settled, unified, and concentrated it. Why is that? So my mind would not be disturbed. But you get a sense of the difference. He's not hating the thoughts, but he's still, even with wholesome thoughts, really following it out. Oh, day and night, I can think about renunciation. No problem. Oh, the body gets tired. The body's tired. The mind's a little bit disturbed. Okay, it would be more helpful to steady the mind and drop the thoughts. But it's not because the thoughts are unwholesome. So just this, this willingness to keep exploring and to see... What leads to contentment, to ease, to happiness? What leads to suffering? And really to see for ourselves over and over and over. And to, to really get it, and this is, a, you know, that it works both ways, that wholesome states of mind obviously will breed wholesome actions. When we're, metta is that what's in the mind, then that's going to be the motivation for action. But it works the other way too, that cultivating wholesome actions also supports the arising of wholesome states. Hence, the usefulness of having the precepts. When we know we're not in a wholesome state of mind and we don't know what to do, and there's this precept, don't take what's not given, and we don't do it. Even if the motivation isn't really that, that sensitivity of wisdom, just in the refraining from taking what is not given, there's a wholesomeness. It is that freedom from remorse. Later, even though it wasn't a totally pure motivation, you can reflect on, I didn't take that thing. And a sense of contentment, a sense of ease, a sense of freedom from remorse can arise from that reflection. And it's really important that we can reflect on our non-harming conduct as a source of happiness, as a source of brightness in the mind. So there is um, a list the Buddha gives. I just want to read it. I don't want to dis- I could discuss each of them at length. But it's from the Discourse on Right View. So he's talking about right view, which is Sally said, the beginning of the path. And he says, when you understand the wholesome and the unwholesome, the root of the wholesome and the root of the unwholesome, that is a person whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in Dhamma has arrived at this true Dhamma. And then he goes and gives a list of the ten unwholesome and the ten wholesome actions. But this is under right view, under really understanding the depth of the Dhamma. So it's not a superficial just do these things, but by really paying attention to the wholesomeness and unwholesomeness in these things, we really arrive at the heart of the Dhamma. So what is the unwholesome? That is killing living beings, taking what is not given, misconduct in sensual pleasures, 
She's not, it's not being celibate. It's just sexual misconduct, which means not harming others with our sexuality. And then speech, there's four actions of speech that are unwholesome. It's really a, a deep thing. False speech is unwholesome. Malicious speech, speech that's meant to harm another, is unwholesome. Harsh speech is unwholesome. And gossip is unwholesome. It's a lot of speech. So I say really because speech can come out so quickly. It's hard often. Maybe you notice today, half of you, that once you start talking, how the, the, the energy can start to tumble over itself. And in the beginning, we might be tuned into our intention, but it's so easy to lose it before we speak. But did you notice maybe in the middle of a conversation, you can start to tune in and go, oh, it doesn't quite feel right, or it does feel right. So like that example I gave from Sylvia, some other talk, where she was at a table and people were, it's kind of a little bit malicious speech and a little bit gossip. Just talking about, I mean, how much of the news is gossip? All this People magazine, all this stuff about all these people we don't know and will never know, and we know everything about their private lives. What is wholesome about that? Not too much. How much of mental space does that take up in people's minds? Scary. That's gossip, not wholesome. Just notice the effect. Again, notice the effect in your mind and heart. So like when Sylvia just started noticing, it doesn't quite feel so good. How can I skillfully, with wholesome intention, change it? And then she just started to speak in a way that was wholesome. Not criticizing anybody or anything, but appreciating what was good and lovely in the moment. Wholesome speech. Okay. And the other three, covetousness is unwholesome. Like really greed for possessions and treasure or something someone else has. Ill will and wrong view is unwholesome. And the roots of the unwholesome, that's no surprise, greed, hatred, delusion. And the wholesome is just the reverse abstention from killing living beings, abstention from taking what is not given, abstention from misconduct in sexual activities, abstention from false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech is wholesome, abstention from gossip, non-covetousness, non-ill will, and right view. This is called the wholesome. I want to point out, it's often mentioned that in the Theravada they talk in this negative way, abstention from. But I think there's a real reason for that. It's actually what I said before. If we just say uh, abstention from taking what is not given, we turn it around and say generosity. That's a very active, wholesome act. But abstaining from taking what is not given, it's not the same as generosity, but it's a wholesome act. Not doing the unwholesome is wholesome. A stronger movement of that open-heartedness of non-clinging could be generosity. So abstention can have a whole wide range. I just want you to appreciate that. Abstaining from saying what is false, even if you don't say something nice, at least you kept your mouth shut and didn't say something false. That's important. And it really expands how much um, wholesome action one is doing. And so understanding that what the results are, what our goals are, which is really happiness of mind and body, peace, clear seeing, liberation, and understanding what leads to those is really helpful. This is from Ajahn Pasano. It's helpful to recognize that good qualities foster further good qualities. Skillful speech and action foster further good qualities of mind so that we can nurture the appropriate causes for the results we are seeking. Otherwise, we may want to experience the fruits of the training before the ripening has fully taken place. Ajahn Chah used the image of a person tending an orchard. Her job is to prepare the soil, fertilize the earth, water it, and keep insects away from the tree. Her job is not to pull on the tree to make it grow faster or stand expectantly waiting for the fruit to miraculously appear. So a lot of what we're doing is watering the tree, preparing the soil, 
but it's the actual act of watering and preparing, the actual act of that clear-eyed, interested, kind attention to our actions, to our speech, to our thoughts, to the motivation, to the intention. Not, you know, if I do this good thing, I'm going to get enlightened tomorrow. If I do this wholesome act, everybody's going to love me. Just the willingness to notice is what's feeding. What it's feeding is not only not remorse, but it's feeding mindfulness and wisdom. And it's the wisdom, the steadiness of wisdom that comes by itself that opens our mind and heart to awakening. Okay, I'll read two things more from the Buddha. This is a, the Chaitanya Sutta, which is intention, an act of will. I think you've heard this, but I just like this phrasing. For a person endowed with virtue, there is no need for an act of will, personal will to say, may freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue. It's just natural. For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It's in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. And this keeps on going. For a joyful person, there's no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It's in the nature of things. For a rapturous person, there's no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. Then it keeps going. For a person serene in body, may I experience sukha. For a person experiencing sukha, there's no need for an act of will. May my mind grow more settled, more composed. For a person whose mind is more composed, there's no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It's in the nature of things that one would. For a person who knows and sees things as they actually are, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel disenchantment. It's in the nature of things. And this keeps on going to, may I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It's in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge of vision and release. And so in this way, mental qualities lead on to mental qualities. The first mental quality being non-harming of body, speech, and mind leads on to mental qualities and as their consummation for the sake of going from the near to the further shore. No need for an act of will. It's in the nature of things that if we have freedom from remorse, from non-harming behavior, it ends up on the further shore. No time frame, mind you. And it's in the nature of things that if we just commit to ourselves that we care about awareness. We care about exploring how our mind gives rise to action, what are the effects both here and afterwards for ourselves and others, that we're willing and interested to look. It's in the nature of things that wisdom will arise. Happiness will arise. And I just want to end with this recollection. I don't know if you remember it, but when I talked about generosity... And I talked about how the Buddha said when we're caught up in our meditation or in our life and suffering, it can help to turn the mind to a bright, a wholesome reflection to change the channel. And one reflection was our generosity. Another reflection he gives is our, our virtue, our sila. Joseph tells a great story of when he was sitting with Upandita and having a hard time and he, day after day after day, and then finally he went in and Upandita said to him, go back to your room and reflect on your sila. And you can imagine how you'd hear that. That's how he heard it, like, oh my God, what did I do? But Sharon was sitting in the back, because you hear all each other's interviews over there, and she knew that what Upandita was saying is just what I'm going to read. Reflect on your sila, because it will brighten your mind and heart. Our, it's actually the vipaka, the result of our wholesome action, our wholesome intention, is the brightness of mind and heart. So there's the case where you recollect your own virtues. They are unbroken, unspotted, liberating, praised by the wise, conducive to collectedness. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting virtue, 
Her mind is not overcome with greed, is not overcome with aversion, is not overcome with delusion. Anytime you're recollecting virtues, and it could just be that you didn't say that bad thing. It doesn't have to be that you're Mother Teresa. Her mind heads straight based on virtue. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense of the goal, a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. And one who is joyful, whose body is calm, experiences ease. So thus, Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of virtue while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home crowded with children. Basically, any time. You know, if you just, your mind's drifting off to the bad side, recollect your virtue. And in the moment you're recollecting your virtue, it's not, your mind isn't filled with greed, with aversion, with delusion. So, thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.